Dear Lord, thank you, Father, for making connections for us, for being the kind of God that looks so far ahead into the distant future, Father, sees all things before they occur and can orchestrate so many small events in our life to put us in the right place at the right time. And you do that to amaze us, Father, with your power and your wisdom. And we do stand amazed, Father. And perhaps most of all, we stand amazed you want us to be a part of a plan that doesn't depend on us, even in the least, which is itself, Father, an indication of your love for us, that though you could do it on your own, it uh, pleases you that you do it with us. And in that way, Father, we enjoy you and you receive all the glory. And we thank you, Father, that this small room at this small class would be a part of that plan. And not just here, Father, but the audience that you have brought to your word from around the world. And it is a privilege, Father. It is an honor. It is a blessing for each of us to be a small part of something that you can make so big. And uh, one day in the kingdom, Father, when we know all that you have done through us and how it has pleased you and we see that reward, we will marvel at how many little things in our life, things we took for granted and perhaps gave no thought to at all, were things you could use in such mighty ways. And we look forward to seeing all of those connections in a day to come when it's revealed. For now, Father, in faith and in confidence, we step out tonight as we do weekly to study your word, confident you'll do something with what we've done to come and listen and, uh, and what we'll learn. We do pray, Father, that David's life and the trials he experiences in the chapters we're studying would be useful to explain to us why we go through things at times and how we will see good things come of it. Perhaps nothing more, Father, than to simply be encouraged by a man like David who was determined to do the right thing under any circumstances and even in the midst of trial. We thank you, Father, for that example. And let us study it under your counsel. In Jesus' name, amen. Since it's been a couple of weeks, I'll remind you where we left off. Chapter 23 had David fresh off his victory after defending the city of Keilah. He had been hearing of the Philistines' attack. He went and rushed to their aid. Remember that? And then as the battle came to the end and he was looking at the potential of going into that city and making his home there, since it was a very fortified, defendable place, he first patiently sought the Lord's counsel on whether that was the right thing for him. He asked the Lord, would the people of the city protect him or would they give him up? And the Lord answered that they would give him up. And that led David to conclude he had to leave the city, which was the Lord's intent, that David would keep moving during this period of trial. Remember, Israel isn't a very large place. Not then, not now. So David's flight from Saul is a, a little bit like a gang of men trying to hide from the police in Central Park. If you're smart, you can manage it. But you're going to have to stay on the run, and you're never out of danger because it's just not a lot of places you can go. And that's the kind of flight David's involved in now and for the next few years. Meanwhile, Samuel, the author, has constructed his narrative to contrast what David's doing while he's on the run in the way he's increasingly obedient, increasingly dependent on the Lord, with what Saul is doing in trying to find him as Saul goes increasingly into rebellion. And that contrast only grows as we go forward. So now we find at the end of chapter 23, David has sought a new refuge. And in this place, Jonathan reappears for the last time, seeking out David in the wilderness. Let's go there. Verse 15. Now, David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish and encouraged him in God. Thus he said to him, do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. And you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul, my father, knows that also. 
So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horish while Jonathan went to his house. So as the story goes, after leaving Keilah, David fled 12 miles southeast, if you're looking on a map, to a place called Ziph. It's a wilderness, and then there's a town within this wilderness region that goes by the same name. So he's in the town of Ziph, in the wilderness of Ziph. And if you looked on a map of the tribal regions of Israel, this lies within the tribe of Judah, which is David's tribe. Yet, as you're going to see, they're not particularly friendly to David. Once again, the Lord sends David some encouragement, as we've seen him do now several times at different points along in the story. This time we see another member of Saul's family, Jonathan again, coming to give encouragement to David. He comes from Gilbeah to Horesh. It's interesting that Jonathan can locate David relatively easily while his father still can't find him. You can only assume that that's the Lord allowing Jonathan, perhaps even sending Jonathan to encourage David, but holding back Saul. This will be the final meeting of David and Jonathan. And during this meeting, Jonathan speaks words of reassurance to David. As we read, he tells David that Saul's not going to find him. And then he says that David will one day be king. We know that as well will be true. And then Jonathan adds, when that day happens, he will be at David's side in support. And then finally he says, you know, even my father recognizes that this is true, which is to say that not even Saul has confidence that he can stop the plan of God, which explains his paranoia, really. Consider Jonathan's words carefully. It seems as though, as you listen to what he says, that he's speaking prophetically. I mean, as if the Lord had given him these words to speak to David concerning the future, sending Jonathan down to speak these words to David. That's what it sounds like, right? But friends, this cannot be true. The reason this cannot be true is because Jonathan's testimony is not entirely accurate. Jonathan is correct, of course. David will one day take the throne, and he's correct. Saul can't stop him. But Jonathan is incorrect when he says that he will be next to David. In Hebrew, Jonathan literally says he will be David's double, which probably means he will be David's right-hand man in leading Israel. Jonathan seems to think he will be part of David's government, that the house of Saul and the house of David will be united in that sense in leadership over Israel. But this is simply not true. Jonathan's going to die before David becomes king. More importantly, this is not the plan for Saul's house. Saul's family is going to have no part in this monarchy going forward. There's no uniting of Saul and David's family. So it would seem then that what Jonathan is saying, what he's speaking, is simply optimism and these hopeful things, but without any specific revelation from the Lord. Jonathan did not understand the Lord's intention was to replace Saul's family with David's family. He certainly didn't know anything of his own untimely death. His words are simply a statement of faith and trust in the promises of God, which have already been revealed. So he's speaking in agreement with the previously revealed word of God. In faith, he was certain that God's word would come to pass. And on that basis, he offered encouragement to David. But this is a good example of the difference between inspired prophecy and simple encouragement. Jonathan was confident. He was sincerely confident that what he was speaking was true. You can sense that in the tone of what he said, right? But he had not received a specific revelation from the Lord concerning these things. He spoke with earnestness. He was convinced. But friends, sincerity is not a substitute for accuracy. Nor does it guarantee that someone's word can be trusted. More often, they are simply presuming too much about what God intends to do. 
People still fall prey to this today. The error today is believing that you've received a divine revelation when merely you are restating the previously revealed will of God or you are optimistically hoping for something in God's will. And if someone simply repeats previously revealed promises of God to us, that does not make them a prophet. That just means they can read. And Jonathan and David both already knew that God had said David would be king. Jonathan's merely repeating this truth. But he mixes God's revealed word with his own assumptions. And he presents the two as fact. Just because someone speaks with certainty does not mean they speak with accuracy. The best we can say about this speech is that it's a personal demonstration of faith in God's word. And of course, in that way, it can serve as encouragement to someone else. But as people make predictions of your future, take those words with a large dose of skepticism and test them against what God has revealed to you. In counseling, I've heard pastors say to one or the other in a marriage, if God's told you to do something and your spouse is opposed to that something, somebody's wrong. And maybe both of you are wrong. But God's never going to say one thing to one side of the family and another thing to another side of the family. So if you're not finding agreement, you're mixed up on something and you need to go back to square one. That's one example of this kind of a problem. Or that example where you have a friend in the church who fancies themselves on a hotline to God and they come to you in a regular way and they say, I have a word from God for you. Well, that's not necessarily impossible, but the test of that is, has God revealed that to you? I've never seen anyone have a revelation from an outsider that's not a confirmation of their own insight personally. God's not going to speak to you only through other people. He has his Holy Spirit in you. It may be that he's spoken to you and you're not listening very well so that he uses someone else to confirm that, but he'll never say something to someone else about you that he hasn't already prepared to tell you personally in some other way. Because if he were to do that routinely, he be encouraging the church to have ears for whatever tickled them through whomever comes their way. That's not God's heart. So after Jonathan's words of encouragement, he and David enter into another covenant. I think this covenant is built off of what we were just talking about. There's some debate over whether this is a new covenant or merely the reaffirmation of their existing covenant. And it could be a reaffirmation of the original covenant of friendship, but I think this is something new. I believe it was a covenant intended to formalize Jonathan as David's right-hand man in a future government of Israel. That's the new thing that's been spoken here that's never been suggested earlier, which would therefore require a covenant. David's promising, in a sense, to grant Jonathan this position, while Jonathan is promising to support David's rule as before. And David might have been willing to make this covenant because of the great risk Jonathan took in even coming here out of the wilderness or into the wilderness to find David and speak to him in these ways. It's a second step. There's... There's the first step of I won't oppose your rise to government and I will support you as long as you don't kill any of my family. That was the first covenant. Now he's going to the next step. Now he's saying, I will actually rule with you as a partner in government to you and support you in that way. And David's taking on that as well. But as they separate here, they never see each other alive again. In the end, his death prevents this covenant from ever being put in force. As Paul says in Romans chapter 7, the death of one dissolves a covenant. Returning back to Saul, as the story typically does, we know David is in Ziph, we know Jonathan is visited. Saul in Gilbeah is still trying to locate David, and he's depending on a word from someone on David's whereabouts, from informers, somebody who knows of David's whereabouts. We remember that earlier when David was seeking to know whether to stay in Keilah or not, where, where did he go for his advice? He sought it from the Lord. In contrast, where does Saul go for his help? To the council of men. It's telling that you never see Saul seek counsel from the Lord concerning anything he does. Not in this situation, not even in later situations. He depends entirely on the wisdom of men or, even worse, to the occult. Moreover, he's only seeking men 
who will affirm his existing opinions concerning David. Can you imagine what Saul might have done to someone who came up to him and suggested that his pursuit of David was misguided and maybe he should think twice about what he's doing? What do you think Saul would have done with such a person? To say nothing of a suggestion that Saul was not to be king any longer and should step aside and allow David to have the throne. What if someone had suggested that? You see my point? He's only seeking for those whose advice furthers the plan he already has, which is find David and kill him. Saul would have heard of nothing else. Paul speaks of a similar pattern in the last days when he says many in the church won't listen to counsel that contradicts their preferred notions. And in place of the Bible, men and women will seek for earthly wisdom. They'll seek out teachers who say what they want to hear. And as a result, false teaching will grow. And with it, biblical ignorance. And that's certainly the days we live in. But Saul gets his informer. Verse 19. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gilbeah saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the south of Jeshmon? Now then, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to do so, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Saul said, May you be blessed of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go now, make more sure, and investigate, and see his place where his haunt is, and Who has seen him there? For I am told that he is very cunning. So look and learn about all the hiding places where he hides himself and return to me with certainty and I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. So as you heard, the inhabitants of Ziph, the Ziphites, they send some group, of course, up to Saul and they tell Saul, we know where David is. We can imagine a lot of very sensible reasons why they would have done what they're doing here. I mean, perhaps they're worried that Saul's going to do to them what he did to the priests when he discovered the priests were harboring the fugitive, remember? So they have that concern. Maybe they wanted to receive the king's favor by being a tattletale. Maybe they didn't think very well of David's band of indebted men. In any case, they send representatives to Saul. They tell him of David's hiding place. They desire to get on Saul's good side, it would seem, and it looks like it worked. And he says to them, they are blessed of the Lord for this action. Here you see the corollary to our earlier observation about encouraging speech. Saul tells these people they are blessed for what they did. In reality, there would be no blessing for seeking to destroy the Lord's anointed, who is David. Once again, showing you that just because someone uses words doesn't mean they are speaking with the heart of God. God is the source of all blessing. He blesses those who seek to please him. As Jesus said in Luke 11:28, when someone yelled out that blessed is the mother who nursed you. And in response, he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. So, again, people may speak with sincerity and earnestness about what they think is true for you from God. That doesn't mean they're right. And people may tell you you're blessed because you've done what they like. That doesn't mean God agrees with them. Saul then begins to scheme. He schemes with the people on how they're going to locate and trap David. And note the repetition of action verbs. He says, go, make sure, investigate, see, look, learn, return. Right? For all that activity, for all that effort, there is not a single thought in that, in, in that narrative turning to the Lord, to what is the Lord's concern, what we should be thinking in terms of the Lord's concern. That's not part of Saul's plan, which is what Samuel is trying to highlight here by the narrative. It's entirely Saul thinking for himself on how he's going to obtain what he wants. He's focused on human effort, while David's been content to seek only the Lord's counsel. Furthermore, Saul says David is cunning, and that's not a compliment, obviously. It suggests someone who schemes, someone who devises trickery to get his way. 
And yet David has been the opposite of cunning. He's relied only on the Lord's direction, while Saul is the one who is obviously being cunning here. This is a very cunning plan that he's spelling out, right? So it's, it's literally opposites between what he says and what he does and who's who. He sends the people back out. They carry out the plan. They report back what they learn. And when they return, verse 24, Then they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Deshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard it, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize him. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. Therefore they called the place the Rock of Escape. David went up from there and stayed in the strongholds of En Gedi. So as you can see, the men come back. They tell Saul, Saul comes down. You get to this point where they're going to have David trapped into the wilderness. Again, a small place. And if you have a pretty good idea where David is, you can get enough men, surround him, and he's going to be trapped. That's where Saul is headed now. Things don't look very good for David. But he still has sympathizers. We don't know who they are, but somebody got word to him. And that gives him enough time to begin to try to maneuver, try to escape. But he really doesn't have anywhere to go. This is a wide open wilderness. If you were to see a a map of the topography, you're either in little canyons where there's not a lot of room to operate, or you're out in a wide open space where you're going to have no problem seeing him on the run and chasing him down. It's, It's not like he has a lot of places he can hide. Because of that, what he chooses to do is stay in the wadis. Think of a riverbed, like a western movie in the deserts of the southwest. A riverbed, and then up from there you have sort of a, a canyon wall that comes up on both sides. And if water comes down over the side of that canyon, it etches gullies into the sides of the hills. And they start narrow at the top, and they sort of widen as they come down. But you have ridges like this that go up and down the the sides of the canyon on either side. So wadi is the term for that artifact in this part of the world. So most of the year they're just dry. There's nothing to them. They're rocky. You know, you can walk up in them, kind of climb up the hillside. But if the rains come, they turn into little gushing rivers as the water comes down. You know, out of nowhere, water just comes rushing down these, these things. So there's wadis all around the canyons that lead up from the Dead Sea River Valley. It's one of these places David has chosen to hide in. They've gone back up into one of these little areas. So the text says here they're behind a mountain, but the word can also be used to describe a small hill. So don't think of a true mountain. Think of more of one of these wadis where they're in a wadi and the people pursuing him, Saul's men, are on other sides of this wadi. They just don't know which one he's in. So they're on one of the other sides, but they're going to eventually surround the whole area and he's not going to be able to get out. Then you see the Lord moving to protect David. A messenger comes, tells Saul, you've got to come home. Philistines are raiding us. Here you see a clear display of God's sovereignty. Israel's enemies are being put to the task of this attack in order to distract Saul. The timing is not coincidental, in other words. And the direction of this attack ensured that Saul would retreat before he would find David. Stories like this have to be a real encouragement to every believer that you can trust in the Lord's protection. Suffice to say, had this been David's day, then Saul would have found him. But because it wasn't David's day, the Lord's going to protect him. And it didn't require that David take it upon his own to stop Saul. Saul was taken away by God's hand. What do you think David was thinking at the moment, though? 
In other words, as this thing transpires, did he assume the Lord would automatically save him? Did he imagine that a messenger would show up? Did he have some concept of how this would all play out? Or was he just resting in the assurance that somehow God would save him? Well, we don't have to guess because he wrote Psalm 54. Psalm 54. For the choir director on stringed instruments, a mass kill of David, when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, is not David hiding himself among us? Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your power. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life. And they have not set God before them. Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will recompense the evil to my foes. Destroy them in your faithfulness. Willingly I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all trouble, and my eyes have looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. Do you notice how the psalm shifts in tone halfway through? In the first half, he's fearful, he's desperate, he's crying out, and he specifically appeals to the Lord's power to save him, to vindicate him. And then midway through, it turns to thankfulness as he watches his enemies run away. This is a reflection of what happened in this moment as Saul is, is taken away by God's power. It's almost like as he was praying, the answer was coming and the battle was turning. The result is an escape for David... And then we're told he ends up in a new hiding place called En Gedi. Now, En Gedi is a very well-known wadi near present-day Masada. You can see it. If you're up in Masada, you can look down on the, on the Dead Sea River Valley and look north and see En Gedi, at least part of it, as it opens up. The En Gedi wadi has this fresh water supply at its head. If you walk all the way back up into the wadi, you reach a point where there's a waterfall coming down the mountain from a spring, and then it flows all the way down through the wadi, and eventually it connects to the Dead Sea. The Romans, when they built Masada, used a system of channels to take the water from that spring and bring it to Masada. That was Masada's water source. It still flows today. You can go up it. Tourists can walk up the wadi. You can stand in the same waterfalls that David and his men would have found refreshing. This is why they're there. It's the only source of water in that area. As you come through the wadi, it's very rocky and it's narrow at some places and you're, you've got the water coming down through the middle from that spring. And along the sides of these limestone cliffs are little pockets, holes, caves all along the side. And it takes a while to walk up. It's a bit of a distance. David is in this place hiding in Engedi. Later you're going to see a cave mentioned that he's in. Perhaps David was in this cave when he wrote Psalm 57. It reads like this. For the choir director set to Al-Tasheth, a Michtham of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God Most High, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. Selah. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. 
Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. So now as we move into chapter 24, there's a little bit of preface I need to give you to what's going to come in this next section because we're going to start a three-chapter section of the book that's very clearly united in theme by Samuel's authorship. It's very obvious as we go through it. You may remember that I said that David's flight would be a time when the Lord is schooling him on righteousness, that the time he spends in the wilderness fleeing from Saul is a time in which David is going to experience many trials, and then as he contends with these situations, he will grow to rely more and more on the Lord, which is the whole purpose of the trials. Remember, in the early stages, he's drooling on himself in a Philistine city to try to escape Saul, right? And that's, that's the low point for him. And as we move through the story, he in, continues to learn more and more what true dependence on the Lord looks like, and that's what God is teaching him. So now, in chapters 24, 25, and 26, we see that growth on display. In fact, the whole point of these three chapters is David's spiritual growth. In chapter 24, David's going to find himself unexpectedly in a situation where he can kill Saul. And he will refrain from doing so, but yet he will still take advantage of the situation to commit a sin against the Lord's anointed. Afterward, he's going to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit because of that sin. Then in the next chapter, chapter 25, when we get there, the Lord's going to put David in a very similar situation again, only this time with a different antagonist. And as David moves to sin again in that situation, the Lord's going to use the antagonist of chapter 25 to bring godly counsel to David through a very unlikely source. And in the course of 25, he's going to learn his lesson and repent. And then in chapter 26, God puts David back in the original situation he was in in chapter 24. Once again, in a position where he could kill Saul. Once again, he will spare Saul's life, but this time he will also refuse to dishonor the Lord's anointed. Proving that he has taken the lesson to heart that God taught him, and he is moving to a further dependence on God. That's an overview. I didn't mean to ruin the story for you, but that's the overview of the next three chapters. Knowing their purpose in the larger context of 1 Samuel, what Samuel is trying to tell us about David, may change your perspective on the people and on the actions they're taking and whether they were right or wrong. I've heard different things said about some of the people in the course of the next three chapters that I think deserve a second look when you understand what's really going on. Tonight we're going to just get to the first of the three-part drama. We're just going to get to chapter 24. Verse 1. Now, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. 
As I mentioned, Engedi is this narrow canyon, and because it's so well known, when it was mentioned to Saul, he knew immediately he had an opportunity. If David's back up in the top of this wadi, it's a one-way-in, one-way-out situation. If that's where he is, and now that he knows that's where he is, then Saul can easily trap him in that space and kill him. As I said, it's rocky, it's difficult to traverse, and it's known for its mountain goats. They're still there today. When we were there this last summer, we saw the goats. They run up and down this area, and it was known even then as the place of the mountain goats, as you heard. So Saul comes there with 3,000 men. This is a huge advantage, 3,000 versus 600, not just in numbers, also probably in skill. So he's making sure he can do the deed this time. As he's going in, David must have gotten word that Saul was coming or heard or seen. So they go into the caves, these side areas, as I mentioned, up in the limestone hills, to hide. Sheepfolds, they're called here, because probably shepherds use them to put their sheep at night, or that may just be a euphemism. Either way, they're hidden in one. And as it turns out, Saul decides to enter one of these caves to relieve himself, just happens to pick the one that David and some of his men are occupying. They were probably hoping Saul would have done the full walk up the wadi, found no one, and then just left, and not have had the time or interest to try to search every one of the little caves that could be found along the way. Instead, they find themselves staring at the back of the king while he's doing his business in the cave. And they see an opportunity, an obvious opportunity. And they tell David, the men counsel him, and they say, this is the day that the Lord was talking about when he told you that your enemy would be delivered into your hands. And so they encourage David to rise up and to kill the king and be done with this trial. And they say, once again, they say, these circumstances have all been orchestrated by God for this outcome. Here again, you see someone speaking falsely as if with godly insight. In reality, this group of men are merely projecting their own desires upon God. And in the course of seeing things happen, they interpret those circumstances to their own benefit. I mean, this is something like someone who sees a money bag fly out of the back of an armored car as it turns the corner in front of you and says, thank you, Lord. (laughs) That is interpreting your circumstances to your own benefit. That is not godly counsel. The truth in this case is not hard to see, obviously. The Lord has placed Saul in this cave for David. Yes. Under these circumstances. Yes. There's no coincidence here, certainly. But for what purpose? As a test of David's heart. A test of whether David is truly going to trust in the Lord for his protection or not. Keep in mind, the Psalms we just read were written by this man under these circumstances, and they spoke of the Lord providing for David's protection. It strikes me that the Lord said, well, let's just see how sincere you were for that need. So this is not an opportunity for David to rebel against the Lord's anointed. So the question is, is David going to do the right thing? Is he going to resist his desire to take matters into his own hands? And to make matters worse... The Lord put men around him, men with counsel, that are encouraging him to do the wrong thing. So will he listen to men, like Saul does, or will he listen to the Lord? Now, in response to their suggestion, David ultimately declines to take Saul's life, and he does so because he realizes that Saul is the Lord's anointed. But he doesn't come to that understanding until he has the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which came as a result of his earlier move to cut off the hem of Saul's robe. To give you a proper perspective on probably what was happening, the robe that a man wore, whether king or otherwise, was the outer garment that they would have kept on in public. Underneath that you have what we might think of as underwear, but like an undershirt tunic would have been the underwear of the day. Well, when you're relieving yourself, all that fabric gets in the way. 
And this is why you go into a cave, because to disrobe in public would have been inappropriate. So you go into a cave, you take that larger outer robe off, and you set it aside, so that you're then free to go do what you need to do. And that's how this would have been accessible to David. If you've imagined the scenario of David creeping up behind Saul and cutting off his hand while Saul is literally right there, and you wonder, that doesn't seem probable. Well, it's not. All right? He's close enough he can get to the robe, which says something. But he's not literally cutting the robe while he's wearing it, okay? That's not practical. Not how it would have been done in any case. So he's got the robe somewhere in the corner of the cave on the floor. David gets close enough to cut it. All of this is still very risky, of course. Now, in the ancient East, the hem of a robe held very special significance. You can remember, for example, the woman who had been ill for so long, bleeding, following Jesus, wanting to touch the hem of his garment. When she does so, she's healed. That's because of a prophecy in the Old Testament that said there'd be healing in the hem of the Messiah's garment. So her faith in him being Messiah was evidenced by her willingness to touch his garment and trust in that. Uh, The hem has generally been, in Israel, a symbol of social status, which is why Pharisees always went to such great lengths to decorate the hems of their robe, uh, to make them more ornate, to show more status. In the case of a king, the hem would have been particularly ornate. You can imagine something very gilded and beautiful, and that would have been part of the uh, way that the king would have been identified. And in cutting it off, even just a piece of it, it's a very symbolic move. It, it implies cutting off his rule, cutting off his authority. So his choice, David's choice in the outset here, was to indicate that he had the upper hand, that he was going to take out Saul, he was going to cut off Saul's authority. At the move, though, he feels the conviction and stops short of going any further with the plan. What I'm suggesting is it's not clear whether David really did intend to kill Saul or not initially, It was after the conviction of the cutting of the robe that he felt differently, it appears. Now, even saying that, though, you think, well, cutting off the robe is sort of a smart thing, isn't it? Seems well well played by David. I mean, you demonstrate restraint because you didn't kill him, but you still succeed in sending a message to him, right? But, friends, this is just pride. There's nothing good in what he did here. David has failed the Lord's test. And the fact that he didn't go all the way is good, but it doesn't make the sin of cutting the hem go away. It just means he didn't pile on worse. And you see that by the conviction of the Holy Spirit as David reflects it there. So he took this, I guess, measured step against Saul, but the problem is, even with that measured step, he's still attacking rather than depending on the Lord. He's still acting in his own strength rather than in the Lord's. He's not waiting and letting the Lord take vengeance. He's scheming. He's working his own plan. The degree of the offense that you make against God never matters. Not in the end. That's something you like to tell yourself to feel better about your own sin. I could have killed Saul, but I just cut off his robe. I could have robbed the bank, but I only kept the extra change I received at the cash register. There's this sense of, I can always imagine what I could have done that's worse, therefore give me credit for not going that far. Friends, God does not work that way. From God's point of view, sin is sin. And the Lord set up these circumstances so that David could feel the weight of his sin, and that would discipline him in the future to do the right thing. David had listened to the voice of his men, at least to a degree, rather than seeking the voice of the Lord, which is what he had been doing and needed to be doing here. And so, convicted of the sin, he first confesses it in his heart, then he confesses it to his men, using it as argument for them not to go any further. And I want you to understand how big a change this is for David, because the act of cutting the hem of the king was a moment of rebellion against the Lord's anointed, which then could have been cause for the king to justly condemn him for that offense. That's, a, that's an offense under law that could have been punished. 
Up till now, David's been blameless. He's been the victim. Now he's culpable, at least to this degree. It's a big change. As I said, to think of it in small terms is not to get the sense of what's truly going on here. He's crossed a line that he can't cross. The change of heart causes him now to become Saul's protector. Let Saul do as Saul will, but David's going to remain obedient to the Lord. The Lord brought Saul near David to test David's heart of obedience, and he failed the test because he tried to take matters into his own hands. From this point forward, David works to reverse that. So having confessed the sin to himself and to his men, what remains? He must now confess his sin to the one he offended, to Saul. Verse verse 8. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord, the king. When Saul looked up behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you. Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for me to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my case and deliver me from your hand. So after Saul comes down from the cave, goes back to the army that he's leading, David comes out, and as you can see, he puts himself in God's hands at this point. Because he's obviously putting himself at great risk of Saul's army. He has no defense anymore at this point as he comes out. He calls out to the king. He professes his faithfulness to his authority. He bows. He lies prostrate. This is all sign of submission. Obviously, little stops Saul at this point from coming up and attacking. So what David's trusting in is whatever happens. I don't mean to suggest David had a guarantee in his heart that Saul wouldn't attack. I don't think that's where we go. Where you go is whatever happens is in the Lord's will. His attitude is, is, at this point is if the Lord allows Saul to come up that hill and defeat David, then that's the Lord's will. And perhaps just punishment for his offense. Or if the Lord protects him, that's the Lord's will. But the Lord's will be done. He's putting himself in the Lord's hands again. But that isn't to say he isn't going to make an effort to turn the king's heart. It's not that he's going to lay down and just wait for something to happen. But he certainly put himself in a position where only the Lord can protect him. He tells Saul, you've been misled to think I'm your enemy. I'm not a threat to you. I respect your leadership. And to prove his argument, he holds up the hem and he says, obviously anyone who could have cut off your robe could have killed you, and yet I didn't do that. That's proof I don't have the intent to hurt you. Ironically, though, what is that hem a symbol of when it's in David's hand? It's a symbol of the very rebellion he says he does not harbor for Saul. Now, the point is still the point. That is to say, I don't intend to kill you. But it's not entirely true for him to say, I have no rebellion in my heart to you. It may have been true in that moment, but it doesn't describe the last ten minutes. Because he has the proof of it in his hand. It's a bit of an irony in the way that he holds that up. So the Lord installed Saul, as he said, and therefore it is the Lord and only the Lord who can choose the day that Saul is removed from office. And no man, not even David, has the right to accelerate that plan. So 
David had to learn that he has to wait on the Lord to avenge his enemies and put him in power as he prefers. Whatever happens in the meantime, that's part of God's plan. That's a revelation for David. I think he got it to a degree. I think he's finally seeing it now. He's learning that lesson through his circumstances. Notice in verse 12, David says, Let the Lord judge between us. And he says, I will not take matters into my own hands. I will let the Lord judge. He he quotes here, Out of wickedness comes only wickedness. In other words, the more we sin, even in cases when we think we're doing good through our sin, it only produces more sin eventually. There's no good way to sin. And so he says, I'm convinced of my innocence at this point. I'll let the Lord judge. You need to hear the words then from that perspective. A man who has come now back to the perspective that I don't need to fight this battle, the Lord will. And his proof to Saul that he wasn't going to fight anymore was, I didn't kill you when I had the chance. So now it's between you and me, the Lord will judge. I'm content to let that be the result. Whatever comes of it. Including in this moment. It's a way of saying, if you're going to kill me, come on up and do it. We'll see whose side the Lord is on. He ends his argument highlighting how disproportionate Saul's anger is to the degree of David's threat. He compares himself to a dead dog or a flea. So how much of a threat can one of those things be to a king? And here Saul is with 3,000 of his best men trying to kill a flea. That's the point. Now, all of his arguments are well-reasoned, right? They demonstrate a degree of repentance for his mistake in cutting the hem. We see all of that. But, friends, when you fail a test from the Lord, uh, you have to retake that exam. So David is going to have to see these circumstances once more before the Lord will grant him a respite from the oppression that Saul brings. So for now, the Lord is going to grant David temporary relief, but not the kind of relief that he's ultimately seeking. He still needs to go through the washer one more time. The relief he gets temporary, though, comes in verse 16. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul, and Saul went to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Uh, Saul, he's funny, isn't he? He he responds with this disingenuous reply, My son, is that you, my son? And his weeping here, all right, so it's probably a mixture of relief Maybe a little personal conviction. I mean, it's just so hard at this point to tell what's going on in Saul's heart because whatever conscience he has left at this point is a pretty tiny part of what's driving him. Certainly the Lord has provoked him into this chase with the evil spirit and all of that, so he's definitely not thinking soundly from all that we've seen. And perhaps this provocation from David is just enough to sort of reawaken a little conscience in him. Maybe. But we all wonder about his heart. He's certainly deceived. He's certainly paranoid. He may have some sense of right or wrong at this moment. Maybe he hasn't completely lost touch, but I don't think that's what we're seeing here. What he recognizes, though, is that the Lord has been in control of all this. That's the primary effect, by the way, of confession and repentance. When you repent or when someone confesses their sin, it has the potential to mend a relationship, yes, to soften rebellion in the heart, yes, but I think its primary outcome 
is it becomes a recognition of God's sovereign will in that person's life. Because if sin is going against the will of God, then repentance must be moving back into the will of God. And so when you see someone coming into a moment of repentance, you're recognizing someone who is beginning to acknowledge a higher authority in their life than their own flesh, than their own pride, and come into agreement with it. And to some degree, I think that's what you see Saul recognizing here, that, that the Lord must have preserved his life in light of what David could have done. And that therefore God is working with David in some way. And so he's come to appreciate his circumstances here perhaps in a new level. But that does not explain why he and his men depart. Don't fall for his crocodile tears. Because though he may have had some regret, that's not his main reason for leaving at this point. He is a king of an army that just saw him narrowly escape his own enemy killing him. And only because his enemy had mercy on him. Under those circumstances, he would have appeared to lack honor if he had had his army go back up the hill and attack David in that moment. For honor's sake, he had no choice but to retreat under these circumstances. And both men know that's what's going on. Both know there's going to be another day to the fight. This whole thing about, I know you will be king, let's set up a covenant now. David plays the part, but you can see that he goes to the stronghold after this, and it won't take but another few verses for us to see them going at it again. So it's not like there's any mystery here. This is more politic taking place here. Saul trying to save face among his men so that they see him as an honorable man. So that's part one of our three-part story. David has failed his test to honor the Lord's anointed. Yes, he didn't kill him. That's why we still have more chapters. But he did not pass the test of withholding from taking matters into his own hand, from listening to the counsel of those ungodly men. He took a step, small though it was. A meaningful step which reflected in the conviction he felt afterward. Secondly, the Lord is going to show David what honoring an evil man truly looks like when it's done by someone with godly intentions. And he will see that play out in the life of another person in chapter 25 so that he can see the example. Even as he pursues his own sinful vengeance himself. In other words, his sinful vengeance will come into conflict with the godly response of someone else protecting an evil man. And when he sees the contrast, he will be convicted. And as a result of his conviction, then that message having been delivered with this exceptionally godly and humble servant, he will come back into the same situation we just saw now in chapter 26, and he will approach it differently than he did this time. It's grace that God gives us a second chance to take those tests we fail. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for uh, patience and for opportunities to grow and As James reminds us, Father, thank you for trials. Father, it's understood in Scripture that when we thank you for a trial, we're not thanking you because we like misery. We're thanking you, Father, because we know you have invested in our life to grow us spiritually. And that that investment has a payoff in eternity. And that we seek to pass those trials and tests, Father, not because we want to be good or because the world needs to approve us or because we even want to approve ourselves, but because we want want your approval. We want to be your representative to a world that fails those tests because they have no faith to even consider them. And Lord, I thank you that David is our model. He's a model not only in his successes, Father, but he's a model in his failures. When we fail, Father, let us repent. Let us confess. Let us acknowledge you. And let us seek to do better. And Father, with your patience and your mercy, I know you'll give us new opportunities to pass these tests uh, because you love us. And when we do pass them, Father, when we come back in a new and better way, encourage us forward, Father, into greater things. 
And bring us back in a couple weeks, Father, so we can continue in our study. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.